Another episode of Cinema Files Radio. I'm your host, Steve Pisa. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing today, like seeing Guardians of the Galaxy at 9 in the morning, eating breakfast, waking up, sleeping late. There's a lot of things you could be doing today. Thank you for joining us. Big hello to Charles Carpenter. He can't be with us today, he's with his family. Family is incredibly important. Remember, boys and girls, we did the show for fun. And Charles knows whenever he needs time to be with his family, leave yourself. That is incredibly important. Today we have a very, very big show. We have a nice show. We have Sean Dasani again. Sean Dasani. Great person. Met her through Greg Grundy. Uh, through the Lackey movie, producer, director, writer, just a great creator. I want to listen to all the different things we had to go through in order to be the place we are today. And positive notes, that's, that's very important. We're going to have Gin and Tonic on the second half of the show. Gin and Tonic is an entertainer. An amazing personality, fantastic, very bubbly, pixie-like. I talked to her about the Los Angeles experience, what it's like. I know what it's like. Some of us know what it's like. What's it like to her? It's funny, I wake up in the morning... I listened to two songs this morning. It was uh, Rihanna's uh, Rihanna's Diamonds and uh, Sia's um, Chandelier. It's hilarious because somebody was telling me how much they hated that song by Sia by uh, the song Chandelier. I hate that song, which is a very strong word, by the way. Hate. And I asked, why do you why do you hate that song? Well, you know that song is about her smoking pot when she was young and regretting it. You didn't know that? Um, no, I didn't know that. And I also don't care. I'll be honest, I really do not care. And I'll tell you why I don't care. For a long time, artists have been writing about things they feel and care about and what they think. And for many, many years, we had no idea what they were talking about. Just think about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. We can understand 90% of what he was saying. First time I ever heard or understood about what Smells Like Teen Spirit was like or what it, what it meant was through Tori Amos. When she sang the song, I understood what the song meant, what the words meant. It inspired me and made me love Kurt Cobain. And this is shortly after his death. But it wasn't important to me to understand the meaning of the song. What meant, what meant a lot to me was the feeling that it gave me, the emotional context. So, I, I love Sia's Chandler. I love that song. And it could, it could mean just about anything to anybody. That's what perception is. You know, Samuel Clemens dies, and then all of a sudden you have 90,000 
English lit major is trying to come up with every different thesis of what his books, you know, are about. When the only real person who knows what books are about is Clemens. And I think right about now, Clemens would not tell you what the meanings of the books were because he'd want you to find out for yourself. So that, I think that's a big mistake when people ask artists to them, what do these things mean to you? Or what did it mean to you when you were writing them? Because then you get this perception or you get this perspective of the song or the movie or the book. And then you can have judgment or whatever you have as humans. I remember when I was a kid and I was reading uh, Richard Bach's John Lennon Seal. I was just maybe 15 years old. And a woman said to me, she goes, I would never read that book. I'm like, why? Why would you never read that book? That's interesting. She goes, that, that guy cheated on, her, uh, on his wife. I would never read a book from somebody who cheated on his wife. How many men have written books through the thousand years, or thousands of years that we've been writing books, that have cheated on their wives, or done something monstrous, or demon-like? And we still read their book. Why is this personal judgment put on this? How about this? How about how about the author should just go away, like the writer from Ender's Game, just disappear, bro, go away, and we'll read your book, and uh, we'll love it. We'll put a, we'll make it part of pop culture and all that all that jazz. But I think to put your own spin on a song or a book or a movie and say you don't like it because of that reason is, is kind of a cheap shot. Kind of a low blow. And in the end, artistically, a little a little odd. Then you you really limit a lot of the things that you watch. I, I can understand like a Roman Polanski or a Woody Allen. I can understand all these other things. Totally understand. But I don't understand for these other things. These are personal issues. So, anyways. I, I love that song, Chandelier. I love um, Diamonds. I love those songs. Uh, two things I want to talk to you today about, uh, I'm very excited about. One is Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, if you've not seen Guardians of the Galaxy, please go watch it. It reminds me a lot of Firefly, of Serenity, of Nathan Fillion and the rest of his team, of, of uh, Joss Whedon and, and his kind of writing. It, it, it's different. It is different. It's more popish than, uh, than a Joss Whedon film or a Joss Whedon project. But it has that same genesis qua. Really, really a nice movie. So I love Guardians of the Galaxy. I'll talk more about it next week when a lot of you have seen it. I don't want to give any spoilers. There's just kind of a spoiler at the end. And in the end credits. But it was really a fantastic film. I don't think you're going to find one person who did not like that movie. Guardians of the Galaxy. Not Guardians of Gahul. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. The other thing I want you to watch is The Killing. Season 4 just came out on Netflix. I will say this. I was disappointed. I was, I was disappointed. I wanted, I wanted something different. You know, I was expecting something different. Um, but that's my, that's my issue. That's my personal issue, that I wanted something different. So, nobody else should be blamed for that. Uh, the Killing is excellently acted, excellently directed, produced. The, what happened was the first two seasons were put on by AMC. 
and then AMC was going to cancel it for the third season. And then Netflix stepped in and said, listen, we'll executive produce this film if you put it on, on the air on AMC. And then in the fourth season, we'll buy the entire fourth season and we'll executive produce it on Netflix. And that's exactly what they did. So Netflix saved it for the third season, which was a really nice season. Very hard to watch. Very hard to listen to. But then you have the fourth season, excuse me, the third to the fourth season. And then um, it's really nice. It's really nice, but for me, it was a little disappointing. I was expecting something a little differently. Of course, that is perception. That's my personal point of view. I want to hear your point of view. What did you think? What did you think of Killing? Did you like it? Call in 657-383-1444. Again, 657-383-1444. I'd love to hear your opinion. If it's positive. <laughs> and if it's negative. I like to hear both of them. But anyways, The Killing Season 4 came out on August 1st. It is amazing. Um, when I put down a show like that, or when I put down, like, I'm, I'm disappointed. Uh, it's kind of like saying I'm disappointed by an episode by Joss Whedon or J.J. Abrams or by Christopher Nolan. Or, you know, these, are, these are master writers, master creators. So you're disappointed in something that a master created. So it's still fantastic. You know, The Dark Knight Rises is still a great movie despite the fact that it has an amazing amount of flaws in it, because of the Christopher Nolan movie. So when you say, I didn't like it as much as, you know, The Dark Knight, you're, you're, you're essentially saying that I didn't like Picasso as much as I like Monet. They're both masters. They're both amazing artists. Um, you're just distinguishing between the two of them, and I want you to understand that. I respect what these people create. I respect what they do. I cannot do what they do. And I cannot do what they did. I can only appreciate it and give you my opinion, which is amazing. Opinions are like two armpits. You, know, you have two and they usually stink. <laughs> but anyways, watch the season, the killing, season four. And get back to me. And let me know what you think. All right, we have a big show today, so I want to get Sean Dasani on here uh, pretty much immediately and just, just have a nice little chit-chat with her here, um, go through her life and go through different aspects of her existence and, and, and see what, what everything's about. And Sean, how are you doing? Steve, hey, good. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for joining us here on Cinephiles Radio, uh, and thanks for waking up early there in L.A. Hey, you bet. Anything for you, Steve. So, so tell me, we, when we first talked about being on the radio, I, I wanted to know about how everything began. Because, you know, as we look, as everybody today is going to look at their IMDb, they're going to see things from second unit director to actress to art director to camera and electric department to set decorator to producer to director. You've gone through the gambit of different, um, different jobs in, in the Hollywood atmosphere. How did, how did this begin? How did this passion begin? And, and and what started this? Sure. Um, so I come from a place pretty far from here, uh, born and raised in North Carolina. And my family is from India. So I had this uh, extended immigrant family experience growing up. We were one of the only um, South Asian families in North Carolina, in, in our town in North Carolina. And one thing we did when I was about 10 years old, you know, I had a lot of, 
cousins, uh, uncles, aunts, and um, every holiday, the adults in the family would say to the kids in the family, hey, put on a little show for us. So when I was 10 years old, um, I wrote a little play. I think it was New Year's Eve. Uh, and we put on a little play for, for the family. And the theme of the play was don't do drugs. And uh, not that anyone in my family did drugs. Uh, so we weren't really keeping our audience in mind over there. But that's what I was learning about in school. So I did a skit with uh, myself and two of my cousins. And I played their mom who would teach them not to do drugs, and then I would play the drug dealer who would then try to sell them drugs. So <laughs> that was the start of it. And, uh, and then from then on, you know, just growing up, I, we, did, uh, we did the skits and these performances, and I enjoyed the writing process and the directing the, my cousins through the plays and then acting in it as well. So uh, that's, that's where it all began from. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people have their experiences from Indian families, from uh, you, know, you know, like Beckham, kicking uh, like a Beckham, and, and they look at oh, Indian yeah. families. They look at yeah. the, right. They look at first generation families and what have you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm Asian myself, and, and and you look at that background and how Asian families really want their children to turn out to be a certain way or to be certain people. Um, did you find that to be part of your, your, your growing up process as your parents expect you to be like a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist and you want to do something else or was it, you know, you want to do this and they're following along with you? Well, uh, that's funny actually because uh, the expectation was actually not doctor or lawyer. It was entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur and he left India when he was 16 years old, went to Hong Kong and learned about custom tailored suits and he would then come to America he came to America when he was about 18 and he was a traveling suit salesman and by the time he actually uh, decided to settle in Fayetteville North Carolina he opened up his own business Uh, his brothers and sisters everyone was involved with the family business so as we were growing up it was just expected that we would come into the family business which was selling uh, law enforcement uniforms, so basically police uniforms to the fire department police and, and various uh, departments of the law enforcement. And um, I, I thought that that's what I would do, but somehow, you know, as you're growing up and you start understanding yourself a little bit better, uh, you explore and you see what's really out there for you. And I knew what the expectation was, but thankfully my family gave me the freedom to just explore the things that I wanted to that's awesome and, and quite open-minded. For, for you know, it, what I find interesting is being a first-generation American. I, I own my own business as well, and first-generation Americans usually own their own businesses, while fifth and sixth-generation Americans usually work for people. Uh, do you do you find that to be the same as being a first or being a first-generation American as you find yourself working hard and having kind of an older life, being young than you do other people, maybe your same age? You know, it's it's hard for me to compare. I mean, I'll say this. I, I'm that type of person that uh, probably doesn't give myself enough credit. I mean, I'm always wanting to do more. And no matter how much has been done, it's like that, that constant need of, you know, I can do better, I can do better, I can do more. And uh, when I first came out here, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of stories, actually. You brought up Bendit, you brought up Bendit like Beckham. And that movie yes. played a really key role in my life. Um, I believe it was like 2001, 2002 or so when the film came out. And it was right about that time that I had graduated college 
in marketing and then got a minor in film. And I was starting to realize that what I really wanted to do was be a filmmaker. And uh, I told my family I'm going to apply to film school. And this was in North Carolina. I applied to three schools on the East Coast, three schools on the West Coast, and only got into two of the schools on the West Coast. So um, one of them being Chapman University, which is in Orange County. So I told my mom, you know, I got into film school. It's in California. And she was like, oh, that's fantastic, but you're not going. And uh, it took a while for me to get her to, to open her mind to the idea, just to the possibility that maybe I could go. So Bend It Like Beckham came out, and there was one art house theater in the town that we lived in, and Bend It Like Beckham was screening over there. So I knew what the movie was about. And my mom loves films. I took her to go see the movie. And, of course, uh, in the film, it's a uh, British Indian girl whose dream is to play soccer in America. And her family is really right. against her playing soccer. And uh, by the end of the film, spoiler alert, uh, it's a happy ending. Let's just say that. And uh, <laughs> by the end of the movie, my mom is sitting beside me in the movie theater, and she's bawling. And she says, okay, right. you can go to film school. Now, Fast forward about five years later, I end up working for the producer uh, that made that film. And I told him the story. And I told him, man, you know, if you think movies cannot change people's lives or affect people's lives, case in point, without this film, I don't know how I would have gotten my mom to agree to let me come to film school. That's incredible. So you saw this. So you saw this movie. Your mother was convinced that this is the way to go because she she obviously probably saw herself in that film, right? And, uh, and you she go did. off to film school, and, and yeah, you know that's that's the most painful thing. The most painful thing is like seeing yourself in a reflection in a film or in a book. Uh, I'm sure you and I have both done the same thing where you see yourself in a book and you're like, oh damn, do I act like that? Yeah. So you went off to film school. <laughs> so you went off to yeah. film school. And uh, and what what happened then? Uh, you, you you went off and you worked with the producer with Ben and like Beckham. Was that right after you went to film school? Was that when you graduated from film school? When was that? So that was a few years, kind of in between. Uh, the way Chapman University used to be structured, and they've changed their their structure now. But what they did at that time, and I'm really grateful for that experience, was that they had uh, they gave you seven years to do your master's program. And the way they did that was you did your coursework in the first two years. Then they, they let you basically have the next five years after that to do your thesis film. And if you wanted to take any other classes, well, as a student filmmaker here in L.A., you get, you get pretty good discounts with the various vendors, whether you're getting uh, people used to get film. I guess people don't really buy film very much anymore. But if you're getting uh, any kind of gear, equipment, like students get the best discounts and deals. So I just kept my student status. I took my two years of coursework, then moved to Los Angeles. I was in Orange County, moved to L.A., started working different shoots, kept the student status, got discounts wherever I could, and then by 2010 did my thesis film and graduated from Chapman. Nice. So I worked for uh, Deepak Nair in 2007. Now, Right around that time, I think it was, it was a really pivotal time in new media. Uh, YouTube, was, uh, YouTube was at its really early stages, and a lot of people didn't know what it was going to be, but this new space where short-form content could live um, was, was being born. And he was starting a new company called Filmmaker.com. And Filmmaker, that's F-I-L-M-A-K-A, was uh, 
basically short films. It was a short film contest. He would invite film filmmakers from all over the country, and he would say, okay, this is the theme this week or this month, and make a three-minute film based on this topic. And, and uh, really interesting pieces of work that would come out. So my background was in marketing, so I was doing all the marketing for filmmaker.com, just traveling around, putting the buzz out there. And, uh, and I worked with him. He's really, really sharp producer, sharp businessman. Nice. Well, you know, I, I want to get through this before we go on with our interview. When, when did you come out to your parents, and, and how was that different than your pursuing of film as well? Because those are, those are both things that, you know, families are going are, are to bring up to you as things that are not um, the status quo of maybe their family experience or, or from what they have experienced themselves. Did they, did they have an issue with that, or, or, or did that pretty much be a steam clear issue? Man, thank you for the segue there. I was learning how to get into it. Right? I was thinking about Man, that all night long last night. I'm like, how the hell do I segue <laughs> into this conversation here? But I just found it. Yeah, <laughs> nice job. Um, you know, uh, so for, for anyone who doesn't know, I, and I'll tell you, I, I identify as a transgender man. Um, and I didn't realize that until a few years ago. I've known it my entire life, but I didn't realize it until a few years ago. Right. And that might be confusing, but it's like you know how when you're three years old and yes. you start understanding the world a little bit and you start understanding the diff- you start understanding that there's this there's this thing called boys and there's this thing called girls. I live right. in that world. It was a very black and white, there are boys and there are girls and I'm three years old and I'm thinking I'm a boy. And I just, it was just, my brain just knew it. And as I started getting older, four, five, six years old, um, uh, it, it seemed as if I, I knew I was a boy, but it's like everyone was basically, the world was telling me I wasn't. The world was telling me, you're a girl. You go to school, you wear right. dresses, you wear pink, you grow your hair out, you have pigtails, um, and eventually you're supposed to like boys. And um, None of that really registered with me. The reality didn't sink in until about age 12, uh, which is a very tender age, and you start, you, you start kind of growing into the early stages of adulthood. And then it becomes real because then there was no, no amount of wishing or hoping or waiting that one day, I mean, I, I just used to think one day, you know, I'll wake up and I'll be a boy and, you know, don't even worry about it. But by that age, it was just, it became so terrifying that, you know, the body was changing in a way that I wasn't expecting and didn't want. And um, right. I think initially there was a lot of denial. You know, I have an older sister who's just a year older and we're really close. And I have a younger sister as well, but she was, she was quite a few years younger. But with my older sister, you know, a lot of our family members would tell her you've got to teach, you've got to teach your sister, you know, you've got to influence her and you've got to, you've got to help her grow her hair out, teach her how to do makeup, all that stuff. And, and I had an older cousin who was about three years older and he, you know, we were all very close, but I looked up to him. It's like he was my male role model and she was my female role model. And I looked up, looked up to him and I knew that we were brothers, but I couldn't verbalize it. And 
and that that part was just uh, it was just really difficult to understand at that age because I did not know what transgender was. There was no example of right. this. There was not even uh, there was no queer community over there that I could reach out to. Um, so I knew, and I think in high school, uh, by the time I got to high school, there was a lot of denial, and this was right around the time that the Ellen sitcom show was getting to be really popular. So Ellen, right. is, is, I don't know if you watched the show or not, but uh, of course what is. happened at that time is, well, it, it was groundbreaking. She comes out on national television as a lesbian. And yes. I, though I didn't know, I knew I was attracted to women. I didn't know if I was a lesbian. Does that make sense? Right. No, totally. Um, but I knew that I aligned very closely with her character, with, with her as a person, as an individual. From the second I saw her on TV, I just knew I aligned with her. And well, Ellen she is, comes out. Ellen is incredibly, incredibly inspirational. She's an incredible woman. You know, I, I know she said that she came out, and I, excuse me for interrupting you, but I know she came out and, and said she regretted doing that on her sitcom because it destroyed that particular part of her career, but... I thought she was incredibly brave, and, and I've always loved her a great amount. I still watch her show today. I'm sorry, continue. Oh, no, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, what she did was was incredible. You're right. And she risked everything just to say, this is who I am. Yeah. And right. and she went through it. She went through that the, the backlash of that. But, uh, and we all know, you know, she's here, and she's on top of the world today um, and inspiring the world today. Um, Right. But when she came out, I can't tell you, I was really upset because people had just started to tell me in high school, hey, you remind me of Ellen. You remind me of Ellen. And this is right before she came out. So within that school year, she comes out, and I, re- I went into panic mode because I was so terrified of what uh, people would think. And people were starting to make this correlation, oh, you're energetically a lot like her. And I just, I was afraid of uh, really looking myself in the mirror, to be honest with you. Um, right. So I, didn't, I, I told my sister by that point, I told my cousin, and I, I told a couple people that were really close to me, but I didn't tell anybody else. And, uh, and then I went to college, and my sister lived, you know, we were at the same college, freshman year. She was my sweetmate, lived right next door. Wonderful. <laughs> she was a great sister. She was very protective. Very, very protective. And she's an older sibling. She's, she's my older sibling, firstborn. So mentally, she was in a different space. And I was always protected, had this, had this shield of protection by family members, by her, by my cousin. By the, from my around freshman year, I thought, you know, I have to grow up. And I also know what the expectation is. Everybody in my family is expecting me to become a woman, is expecting me to right. blossom into this woman who after probably a few years after college graduation, they want me to get married. And we're not super traditional, but uh, we, we, have had, we did have a couple of arranged marriages in the family. Um, so I knew, like, probably after I graduate, my family, my parents are going to start looking for a boy for me. And it scared me. It scared me completely. And uh, I thought, you know, if, I, if I'm going to become who they want me to be, I need to get out of here. I need to figure this out. Um, so I transferred schools. I went to school in Virginia. I finished it out over there. And that was, it was like this unbelievable sense of freedom. But 
also in the back of my mind, I knew what I was supposed to do to please everybody else. Um, right. And sophomore year comes around, and uh, and things are, you know, it, I'm at this point where people think I'm a tomboy. So I walk a certain way, I talk a certain way, I have a certain demeanor and style, which is more, borders more masculine than what what you typically see in uh, in female, I guess the way females carry themselves. Um, right. And and I just you know I would I would analyze everything and try to be as feminine as I possibly could, but it just wasn't fitting. It wasn't feeling right. And I didn't say anything to any of my friends. And I had really wonderful, sweet friends. And by senior year, uh, a good buddy of mine was. Um, he had graduated. He was moving back overseas where he came from Malaysia. So he was moving back and he comes to me. We're at a, at a going away party for him. And, you know, I've known this guy right. for three years now, really good friends. And he says to me, you know, I know, and it's okay. And mm-hmm. all my friends knew. I just didn't know that they knew, um, but right. they knew. And I Your think that's what beautiful know. friendship is, point of just acknowledging this is my truth. Um, so, so I told the family, I, I knew that I was attracted to women. And I, I told my parents, and, you know, they, I think it was difficult for them to, to understand, to wrap their head around that. Now, soon after that, I moved back to North Carolina. I worked over there for a little while in marketing, came out to California because two things, I knew I wanted to do film work. And number two, from a personal level, I knew there had to be a queer community in California. Of all places, I knew I would find that in California. So I came out here kind of looking for that part of myself. Um, right. And there Diversity. was this... Uh, sorry, go ahead. Diversity. Just more diversity. Diversity. There was this intersection of, you know, working and trying to become a filmmaker. And, you know, film, when you're writing your own stuff, when you're directing, there's, and, and when you're acting, there's, it's got to come from a place of honesty. It's got to come from a place of authenticity. And at that point, I wasn't quite ready to face that side of myself. Um, right. I, I was addressing uh, family issues, culture issues, things like that, but I wasn't yet addressing my, um, my transgender identity, my queer identity. I wasn't really touching on those topics at all. Um, so a couple years ago, um, I had about four or five years ago, I had or maybe even sooner than that. Um, I had just come out of a long-term relationship. And, you know, when you're in a relationship with somebody, you tend to focus very much on the dynamic of the both of you. When you come out of that and there's nobody left to really think about but yourself, certain things start to open up. And I remember sitting um, and, and I had, I don't know what drove me to it, but I looked up the meaning of the word transgender. And, uh, and right there in black and white, it's like I saw the words, um, somebody whose uh, physical body does not align with their, I guess, their, their gender identity. Uh, right. And when those are two different things, that's what a transgender person is. And I knew right then and there, okay, I guess this entire time, I've never really been able to say I identify as a lesbian because I'm not a lesbian. Uh, I never have been. I'm a transgender man. And uh, when that realization hit, it was really terrifying. And 
sexuality you can hide uh, if you want to. You can stay closeted if you want to. Gender identity, and if you choose to go through a transition process, these are things you cannot hide. So this whole time of being kind of removed from my family as I was going through this exploration process, um, I knew if I was going to go through a physical transition, there was no way to hide it. Um, it was happening at a time where my thesis film from Chapman was starting to get into film festivals, and I, I had a completely different name. A lot of transgender people, once they, once they start embarking on their transition process, will change their name. Uh, to align right. with the gender that they identify with. And so I had a different name that was credited on the film, that was going out to festivals, that was starting to get publicity. And I knew that I need to figure this out because, right. first of all, if there was something that was going to be done, um, I had to own it. I couldn't hide it. There was no way to separate my, my life, my past life, being born and raised, in a female body, socially conditioned to be a woman, and now this identity of being a man, there was no way to separate these two things. They had to kind of flow together. And uh, it took a little bit of time to really uh, just become comfortable with that and really feel like it was a blessing and not a curse. Right. So I, I know I've talked a lot right now. <laughs> so. No, 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 no. You're, per- you're perfect. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Is, is <laughs> I, I remember a friend when I was young and, and, and a person going, uh, you can hide the fact that you're gay. I can't, I can't hide the fact that I'm, he goes, yeah, but I, I really can't hide the fact that I'm gay either because I'm, I'm obviously going to be in a relationship. And he goes, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm physically black. You're physically, you're physically a man. So people will see you as a man. I found that very interesting because it, it always goes back to, to choice. I, I remember him mentioning choice. You know, you have a choice. And I was thinking, I don't think you have a choice. And he, and he was saying, listen, if I had a choice, I wouldn't choose to be excluded. I wouldn't choose to be on the side. I wouldn't choose this. I would choose to be the status quo. I would choose to be a woman. I would choose this. I would choose, if I had a choice, I would choose that. It's very, it's very interesting. Uh, growing up in in America, uh, my first mentor was gay. My second mentor was gay. Uh, my first mentor mm. uh, uh, ran away from Sicily with my father because he was gay. My father is not gay, obviously. But he ran away with my father, came to America because you can't be gay and be in Sicily at that time in that era. So I grew up very much mm. in the gay community, and I found it very interesting to see the American attitude towards the gay, homosexual, transgender world have you, have you found it to be the same as far as um, still in 2014 with fossil fuels that people still have the same kind of hang-ups or the same kind of thought patterns and they, they can't get past it? Do, do you see that still or is it, do you see it dwindling away as it becomes more mainstream? Well, you know, I think anytime we are faced with something we don't understand, the first reaction is fear. And... It comes from, fear comes from ignorance. Once you kind of know and understand something, hopefully you're not as afraid of it anymore. And um, I mean, and that was the same thing with me going through this experience. I wonder, you know, born and raised in North Carolina, it's, it's the Bible Belt. Uh, and, right. and our family is, is uh, pretty, you know, I don't know if conservative is the right word, um, right. but for lack of a better word, I'll say conservative. I mean, 
if I deserve. hadn't gone through this experience, if I hadn't gone through this experience, I don't know how I would have felt initially. I think it takes that kind of exposure to meet someone who identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, have a conversation with that person, know what their experience is. When you do that, you start understanding, you know, we're not that different. And I think that's what attracted me to filmmaking was that you can tell stories about communities, about people. And um, for someone who doesn't have exposure just in their, you know, in their day-to-day life, in their circle, this is how we learn. We learn through our communities. I mean, we learn through, through film and through things that we watch. Um, I, I remember, you know, people you know, talk Sean, about that was a film. Much, yeah, that was I'm sorry, Sean. That, that was a much better segue to film than I did towards the gay and lesbian side, by the way. That was an excellent no, segue no. back there. <laughs> that was, I was awesome. No problem. Uh, but, but no. <laughs> staying, on that, <laughs> staying on that film thing right there, from, from we go from yeah. that subject to the other subject, do you, do you find that the adversity and the diversity that you've gone through through those different situations of being first-generation Indian, being from North Carolina, your family supporting you throughout the film thing, even though I first did not, the, the gay and lesbian thing, not really being a thing, but the transgender gender thing being a thing. Did you find that that inspired a different part of your filmmaking, writing, producing? Did that change the way that you saw things or the way that you approached subject matters? Yes, definitely. Um, you can, I, I think the best stories in films come from personal experience. And uh, obviously, you can get wildly creative. You don't have to be super on the nose with the, with the types of films that you make. You know, you can use metaphors uh, for things, but you have to come from a place of personal experience. Otherwise, it's not authentic. Um, and, and one of the first films that I did that I started sending to film festivals dealt with culture issues in terms of um, Indian, South Asian identity, uh, and, and families dealing with South Asian identity here in America. And, uh, and that, you know, it, it wasn't based on my, my exact personal experience, but it was based on experience I had lived in the sense of, uh, it wasn't my personal story, but it was, it was a story that I'd experienced from my community, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, I, I think you have to, you have to come up come from a place of what you've been through and, and tell those stories, and that's what makes great, uh, great cinema. And sometimes, sometimes you, you may judge, a person may judge their own piece of work, but other people connect to it. And I think that's what you have to keep in mind. You can't be somebody who just says, yeah, this wasn't a perfect film or this wasn't, could have done better with this project. I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to send it out. I'm not going to uh, publicize it because audience members will connect in a different way. And I think that goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning of the show where a writer or an artist doesn't want to dictate to you as an audience member what to feel about the work because everyone's going to connect in their own way and that's the beauty of it. Right. You know? Right. I was listening to Chandelier this morning and I just really love that song and I was watching the music video. And I was talking to a friend and they're like, yeah, you know that song's about you know, her regretting smoking drugs when she was young. I'm like, I had, I had no idea. It's like, yeah, I, I really don't like the song. And that song's really huge. And I thought to myself, you know, that's kind of a, a weird attitude to have, uh, personally, because when you, when, you dis, when you discount an artist because of what the artist 
feels or thinks the art is about, then you're totally discounting your own personal perception of, of the object as well. I mean, it's like going to Interstellar and watching uh, Christopher Nolan's film and going, okay, I listened to what Christopher Nolan had to say about the film. This, this must be what the film is about. And it's one of the reasons why he doesn't do commentary, because he does not want to tell you what the movie's about. He wants you to tell him. Mm-hmm. So th- that's why I find it very interesting when people come into art and have judgment. Like, do it yourself and then have your own judgment. Uh, do, do you have mm-hmm. the same feeling towards art, or, or do you have a different attitude towards art in, in general? You know, uh, I, I'll, I'll have to answer this in a very particular way, because I, I grew up with a very, uh, with mainstream exposure to, to films and to art. In the sense of, uh, you know, in North Carolina, where I was from, we saw, like, the big-budget Hollywood films. We didn't really get a whole lot of, I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to art house films, to independent cinema. Um, and a lot of my focus as far as art generally was what you heard on the radio. I didn't go to art galleries, none of that, which, you know, I wish I had, and I try to do that now because art informs art, whatever the medium is. You know, you get, you get so many right. interesting uh, dialogues from different, different mediums and different styles, and people are trying to say, uh, use their voice in different ways, whether it's, whether it's painting or, or sculpture, photography, so um, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Steve, I think I might've started rambling. What was your specific question? Let me answer your question. My specific question, my specific <laughs> question really was about the perception of the, <laughs> perception of the artist and the art itself, because I find it incredibly troubling that except for like Roman Polanski and like Woody Allen, I can totally understand these guys are still alive and what have you, or still, you know, kind of bastardly. I can understand why people don't want to see the work. I, I, I won't go see a Roman Polanski movie, but I, I don't understand why people would look at like, um, you know, John Lenton Siegel, written by Richard Bach, and uh, like I guess he cheated on his wife, or some some baloney like that. And I remember somebody saying, "I would never read a book from a man who cheated on his wife." And I was thinking to myself, "Oh, right, right." There's right. hundreds, of, there's hundreds of thousands of books out there. There's got to be at least tens of thousands of books of people who are horrible human beings that you love reading their book, but they're horrible human. And they own some of these people own slaves, and you read their books. And this guy cheated on his wife, and you won't right, read his right. book because it's modern era, and you can read it from a newspaper. So my question to you is, do you have that, that similar attitude, or do you see that people have that similar oh, attitude okay. towards you? Or is, yeah. man, man, I'm glad I asked you for clarification. I, I think I got ADD as I transitioned to male or something like that. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, no, when, you go, to, I, when you, you go towards <laughs> male, that's what's going to happen to you, my friend, okay? I'll give you, I'll give you all the warnings. You're going to lose a little memory. Yeah, you're going to lose a little smart. <laughs> I tell you, man. That's, it's already that. happening. You know what you do? Hold on to, the, man, hold on to the, the woman stuff, which makes women strong, which is your intelligence, and, and get all the other guy stuff, which is the cool stuff, too. But <laughs> women have, that intelligence thing from women is pretty incredible. Go ahead. Oh, man. I tell you. I tell you. Yeah, no, it, it's been a blessing. It's been an incredible experience. To, no, to answer your question, actually... You bring up a really good point. You know, I, I don't like judgmental people. And I've tried really hard not to have judgmental friends in my life. Uh, look, we're all human. And whether we like it or not, we're all going to do things that we ourselves feel like, oh, my God, that was so messed up. How could I have done that? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know who walks around cheating on somebody and, and thinking, uh, yeah, I'm awesome, I did a great thing, right? I, I mean, when you mess up in whatever particular way that you mess up, 
you know you messed up. Right. And if you're someone with a conscience, you're not, you yourself, you're not proud of that. And that's something to work through as a human being. And everybody does it. Everybody goes through their ups and downs of screwing up in life. And uh, no, I think it's, I, I think it's probably uh, maybe a, a, narrower, a narrower viewpoint to look at something that way to say, no, I'm not going to read this piece of art because this person did that. Maybe you don't want to read it because you think it's a it, you don't think it's a good piece of work, or or you you know you don't want to waste your time on something that you don't think is good uh, from an art perspective or whatever. But to to just critique somebody, yes, you knew half the things that all creators of every piece of art ever made have done. You probably wouldn't you wouldn't watch anything, you wouldn't read anything because right. those life experiences that's what makes the art great. That person has gone through something and then can be open and honest about who they are as an individual and share that in art, uh, that's what makes it interesting, you know? Right, right. So um, you, you started off uh, mention, from what I can see. Go ahead. No, go ahead, John. Uh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. So I, I, I see, you know, you, I see that you started off your career mostly in 2005 with Dada G doing the short. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you started off with, with your original name, which says Sabina. How how was that experience, and then how how did that flourish into Game Night, the TV series? Sure. Um, so Balaji was it is it's my favorite project that I've worked on. Uh, I was in my second year of film school, and it was my one of my earliest pieces. And uh, I was in my second year of film school, and I had just seen this movie called The Terminal with Tom Hanks. Uh, and, yeah. and it's a story where Tom Hanks is stuck in the airport, you know, and there's this guy in that film uh, named Kumar Palana, and Kumar yes. Palana played the janitor in the airport, and he's the little Indian, uh, South Asian elderly man who's, like, basically, he feels like everyone at the airport, you know, he, he wants to keep a low profile, otherwise he's going he's gonna to get deported back to India, and really right. sweet character in the movie, really adorable character in the movie, so I'm watching the movie, and he's doing, you know, Tom Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones are on a date in the airport, and Mark Palana comes to in the background, and he's basically pretending to be a waiter, right? So, so he's juggling behind them, and he's doing all these, like, plate spinning. He's doing all these magic acts in the background, and he's quiet, just very quietly just doing his thing right there in the background, and I was so amused. So I saw that movie. It was summer 2004. One week later, I happened to meet him on a film set. I was working on my first feature film, and he had a small role in that project, and I, and I started talking to him. And, you know, he's about 87 years old, really sweet man. And I'm, and I'm asking him, you know, all that stuff that you were doing in the terminal with the juggling and the plate spinning, I mean, was that like, mag- I mean, was that like uh, movie magic, or were you actually doing that? He said, no, I, I was actually doing that. I've been doing that for years. Um, and we had a great conversation, and a few months went by, and I'm – and uh, I have to do a school project. And so I'm thinking and thinking, like, what's, what's the film going to be about? And I couldn't get Kumar Palana out of my mind. I was so endeared by him. And I thought, you know, I, I want to work with this guy. And he just did the terminal. And it's a Steven Spielberg film. And I'm a student. Right. Um, but I want to make a movie with this guy. Uh, so I started writing the script. And finally, I got to a point where I really, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good about it. And I send it to him. And I don't know if he remembers me or not. Uh, by chance, we had taken a photo together. On that one day that I met him, we had taken a photo together. So I sent him the photo, sent him the script, and just asked him, look, I'm a student. I've got no money. 
uh, I know you just work with the biggest director in the world, but would you do my student film? He calls me the next day, and he says, no one has ever written a script for me. Yes, I would love to come do your student film. So he lives up in the, he, he was living up in the Bay Area. Kumapalana um, just, he, he passed away last October, FYI. And there's a story I want to share with you about that uh, when we circle back to it. But he was living up in Oakland at that time, and he came down to Orange County. He stayed in my apartment. I slept on the sofa. You know, he, he stayed in my room, and we would drive to set in the morning. And, uh, and that's why, you know, it's such a, such a, Family, you know, it was just like we became family right off the bat with each other. And uh, that's why I think the film has a special place in my heart. So, so we did this film called Dalaji, and he plays this elderly uh, gentleman whose daughter is married to an American guy, and they have a grandson. And so it's just like the story of him moving into her house and their uh, clash of generations, clash of cultures, you know, the, the story takes place the first day he's living in, in, in her house and what that's like, what the experience is like. Um, so the movie goes on to a lot of film festivals. And, you know, this is that, the thing that I was talking about earlier. As a filmmaker, you will go back and you'll watch, your, you'll watch your own film thousands of times. By the time you shoot it to the editing process and you're watching it over and over and over and you see every single mistake, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, my God, I should have done this better, I could have done that better, and to get down on yourself. But I tell you, we, we worked through that. We sent it out to film festivals, and it was received so well. Um, and I tried to go to every festival I could where the film was screening, and every single uh, screenings were the ones where they would screen the movie for kids. Um, I didn't necessarily make it with kids in mind, but I guess because of the family, uh, family nature of the, of the film, it was, it was really family-oriented film, uh, it went to a lot of children's film festivals. And kids would just laugh at places that I didn't realize were funny. Kids would just enjoy the film in a completely different way. And it was such a wonderful thing to see something where I might be looking at the filmmaker and say, oh, you know, I could have done this better or that better. But here the audience is really enjoying this piece of work and really connecting to it. People would write letters after that, and I would receive letters from people, and, and they would talk about how much this film would mean to them. Every single time something like that happens, it just tells you, it just encourages you, and I'm, I'm really grateful to those people that would do that who would reach out and say, you know, I really appreciate this piece of work because I think as filmmakers, we need that. We need validation from our audience, from our supporters that, hey, you know, this is something, what we're doing is actually meaningful to people. Um, right. So that, that's why Zalaji will always be special to me in that way. Um, so that was the first film we started sending out to film festivals. And then a uh, film that I did was called Bollywood Invasion with a dance movie. Um, Game Night was the first web series I had directed. It was, Game Night was, uh, they had done season one of Game Night. And they put it online and it, and it got some attention. And... The two creators for Game Night, Ashwin Gore and Rajan Belu, uh, they had approached me. They were producing and they were acting in and they had written the script, but they wanted someone to come in and direct. And it was the first time that I had uh, directed something that I hadn't written. Um, that, you know, I didn't know how to approach that initially. Uh, so in our first meeting, I said, look, let me read the script and I'm going to give you a bunch of notes if you like them. And if you agree with them, then I think, you know, I'm, maybe I might be the right match. But if you don't agree with them, 
um, maybe I'm not the right match for this project. And I think that's a that's a good way to approach things. Um, so they, they agreed with a lot of the notes, and then we worked on it together. And it was really liberating to direct something that I hadn't written. Um, the, the process was, was fantastic. And, and Game Night Season 2, it went on to win uh, some awards as well. Um, so that was the first web series. It was a 10-episode web series. And we filmed right. the whole thing, I think, in about nine days. Uh, and wow. so it was a lot to take on in a really short amount of time. Yeah. Well, for audience, that's so, Game Night. Uh, it's, it's considered a TV series, 2011. Uh, she, she plays herself. You play yourself, basically. <laughs> it is your name. So you use Sabina. Uh, sure. Game Night, I actually directed Game Night. I didn't act in Game Night. So, so yes, previously, uh, my birth name was Sabina, which of all things means princess. And... <laughs> I was not a princess, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> Life is ironic, man. I, I, what are you going to do? Um, it is. You know, I want to share it with you something. Uh, sure. I, I don't know if you've heard of Janet Mock. Janet Mock is a, she's an activist in the transgender community, an amazing, amazing activist. Uh, she, she hmm, I don't know when this was, maybe somewhere in this, this year, maybe it was earlier this year, she went on the Piers Morgan show and she talked about being a transgender woman, and, you know, he, um, I think he misgendered her a couple times on the show, and there was some backlash within the trans community, uh, and, and so there was a big, big conversation, big dialogue about it, and I thought to myself, you know, uh, there, there's a way to handle certain situations like this, and you did something earlier in this show, and I, I really appreciate it, uh, because we can talk about it. Um, I know earlier on the show, as you were introducing me, you referred to me as she and her, and right. um, mm -hmm. I want to bring that up because I think for a lot of people who, who maybe don't know how to address somebody, um, but I do use male pronouns, and uh, right. initially, I think, as I was embarking on this process and this journey, I would get it would bother me a lot when people would address me in a, with, my, with female pronouns, would, would, uh, would right. say she and her. And I think now it's gotten to a point where, um, because you ask about the name, and I think for me as, as someone who's been going through this process, I have to be okay with you asking this. Like I tell myself, other people may or may not be, other transgender people may or may not be open to that conversation. Right. But, you know, Steve, from me to you, I want to tell you, I appreciate the conversation because I think um, for me, it's, it's a healing thing to be able to talk about it very open and say, yes, my birth name was Sabina. I identify as male now and my name is Sean now. There's no way for me right. to deny that. Um, right. So, yeah, so I, I really appreciate the fact that we can talk about these things in a very open way. So I just wanted to say that. We should, we should not feel shame for who we are as human beings and, and what we're Absolutely. born being. You know? And Absolutely. when I first talked to you, uh, when I first was introducing you on, on the radio show, and when you, when you listen back, you'll hear me. I called you she a couple of times, and then I started, I started neutralizing that and started going mm -hmm. towards, um, you know, he or towards... We'll talk to, you know, your name. Because I, I recognize that I was saying that at the beginning. That's all, that's all, that all, it all comes down to respect. Respect to people. Because right. if somebody wants to be called Mrs. Schubert or Ellie, you know, you're, you're going to call them what, you, what they want to be called. 
And that's just just respect. You have respect for people. I people you. have respect for you. You know, and, and in this what, situation uh, right here. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no I was going to say, what, what you're saying, actually, a, a friend of ours, uh, a good friend of ours, actually, I, uh, I really love him for that. Uh, Guy Grundy, you mentioned him earlier. We met through Guy Grundy. Yes. Now, the right. way I met Guy Grundy, uh, who's, who's a world-famous bodybuilder and, uh, and, and physical trainer, personal trainer, uh, we started working Great. out together. I met him by chance. We started working out together, and this was, this was before I realized, uh, not before I realized, this was as I was realizing I was transgender. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I was going into a little bit of a personal hole. I was going into this space mentally where I'm like, I, I'm just like, I need to keep to myself. I need to figure this out. And I wasn't wanting to reach out to a lot of people, wasn't wanting to really make friends. But I met Guy Grundy, you know, and, and just by chance. And this guy has massive biceps, right? So we're standing there. Uh, getting coffee, actually, and I turned to him and I said, hey, man, you look like you worked out. So he starts laughing, and uh, we start talking. He says, you know, he, he's a, he, he boxes, so I asked him if he can train me to box. So we start boxing together, and we've been working together, working out together. We, we worked out together for maybe a year, two years, something like that. Anyway, early on, you know, he knew me as Sabina. Like, I was, I, I hadn't changed my name yet. I knew mentally I'm going into this process in this space and Guy Grundy couldn't be more different than me you know big Australian bodybuilder his life experience my life experience completely different and I'm thinking I'm working out with this guy and and uh he's you know we're, we're, we're punching uh I'm punching the pads and he's like all right sweetie that's great sweetie good job honey and I and he wasn't doing it uh <laughs> he wasn't doing it to be disrespectful that was just his style. So right. after maybe like three or four sessions, I had to tell him, I'm like, look, man, uh, could you just not call me sweetie? And he, he was like, <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and he was like, what should I call you? He was like, I tend to call uh, women clients. I tend to say sweetie, honey. No one seems to be bothered by it, but sure, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, well, what would you call your male clients? He says, well, I would say mate. Right. I said, okay, we'll say mate. He said, all right. And a little while after that, again, as I was kind of understanding and exploring, I told him, I'm like, look, guy, I need to talk to you about something personal. And we would work out together, but we had this great life with each other, and we would talk about relationships and, and all kinds of things. And I said, I'm going through something right now, and I think I'm going to go through a transition. And I had no idea what his attitude was going to be, how he would take it, how he would feel. But he was so supportive. And... um by nature, I mean he's he's probably six two, six three, big guy. You know, somewhat intimidating to my five foot four Huge frame guy. over here, and yeah. and I just didn't know how he would receive it. And he he was just so cool about it. And he was one of the first people that just really opened my eyes that you know we have to we have to love ourselves first, and we have to accept yeah. ourselves first. And if somebody is not respectful of that, they just don't deserve to be in your life. Like you don't need to have people no. like that in your life. And uh, yeah. and man, I just I learned so much through him. And uh, really, really amazing guy. And he's been through so much himself. He's been through it all. Guy, guy Grundy's mm-hmm. been through a lot of things in his life. He's, he's he's lived in his car. He's two-time Mister Australia. Great actor in the Lackey the movie, directed by Sean Piccinino. 
uh, uh, just a really fantastic guy. And a message to you out there, uh, Guy Grundy, if you're listening right now, and I know you are, you can call me Sweetie anytime. Uh, I'm more than welcome to this. <laughs> you can call Sean uh, Mate, and you can call me Sweetie anytime because, uh, you know, I got this per- yeah. I got those pretty eyes. <laughs> so that, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have people around you who support you. It's great to have people around you who understand you. Please, Sean, tell us what what can we see you in next? I I, I see that you're working on a, a on a play. I see you're working on a lot of you work on advocacy advocacy groups as well for for gay marriage for for equality marriage. Excuse me. Um. So what are you working sure. on now? Where where can we? Sure. Sure. I'm on the so uh, work wise. Um. I, I think I was telling you early on, so I started out, you know, with my family, we would do these little skits and plays, and I would write and direct and then act in them. Well, you know, I've been doing writing and directing, and now that I'm finally able to to present physically the way I've always seen myself, I'm starting to act. I'm going out for, you know, doing some acting now. So I just did a play in June. Uh, it, it had a nice little run at the Stella Adler Theater in Hollywood, and uh, it was a part of the Young Playwrights Festival. It was the first acting gig I've done in Los Angeles, and the play was called The Not Lesbian. And it was written by an 18-year-old kid out of New York, uh, Travis Emile. And the play was actually, of all things, about a transgender man, college student, who has recently transitioned, and he is meeting his ex-girlfriend for the first time, and they're meeting up for dinner. And she identifies as a lesbian, but she's still attracted to him. And uh, she's trying to figure that out. So it's, they've got great chemistry and great dynamic. But, uh, sounds, but you know, I that know that. awesome. It, it was amazing. That and uh, the cool thing is the, uh, when this play came through the Young Playwrights Festival, I know from the, the casting directors were, they didn't know how they were going to cast the role of Ollie, who I play, who's a, a person who is just recently transition, transitioning. And, uh, and I, I'm telling you, I couldn't have done this role six months ago. I was at a completely different space uh, in my life. And that's how fast, like, everything has happened, like, boom, 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 you know, one thing after another. And I think you, I, I just started opening myself up to, to, uh, to this dream, to the acting dream, which is something I've wanted to do my entire life. And uh, then a few weeks after that, you know, did a cooking show for Mixed TV. And just going out and auditioning more and more, but... You know, that's the fun stuff to me. That's like, okay, keep doing it because I love it because it's fun. Meanwhile, um, still writing. So working on writing uh, my first feature film. Uh, and, you know, you know how it is in Hollywood. You kind of do a little bit of everything until you get to that one thing that you keep doing. And I love the process. So I'll work on set. Uh, I'll AD, I'll UPM on, on film sets, uh, looking to direct my first feature, hopefully sometime soon. Uh, meanwhile, we just finished up... Uh, um, a, a bunch of videos for a new web app that's coming out, which is called Learn Bhangra. Now, Bhangra is a style of dance that comes from India. And we filmed uh, some 50, uh, it's B like boy, H-A-N-G like girl, R-A, Bhangra. Okay. And uh, Bhangra. It's, it's an intense form of dance. We filmed like 50 videos. So pretty soon you're going to be able to download this app on your phone uh, for free and learn all the different styles of dance. We filmed all the videos for that pretty recently, and I think the app is coming out on in end of August, early September. So not too far, not too far away. That's awesome. I'm so happy and, for you, uh, Sean. Uh, you know. uh, thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, all these stories are uh, fantastic, and, and they're they're very 
they're very positive. I, I think it really pushes the audience into, you know, being who they are and facing who they are and just going out there and being happy and completing their projects. Uh, it, it sounds to me, even though with some adversity and diversity throughout your existence, that you pretty much come out the way you want it to and you're doing the things that you desire. Man, I, I tell you, I, it doesn't happen unless you have, like, really good people around you. And luckily, family has been very supportive. I don't know where I would be without my family, you know. And I, and I think that's the thing. It's, uh, the journey for someone who's transgender, someone who's gay or lesbian, bisexual, like, identifies as queer, I think you're, the family plays such a key role in that. And uh, a lot of families don't know how to deal with that or, or kind of let, uh, maybe let someone... Um, or maybe separate themselves or distance themselves from their family member who's going through something. But uh, but just just a, a note to anyone who's listening, uh, who's who's going through their process, please do share it if you can, if you have the ability or option to share it with your family, because it takes family time as well, just just as much time as it might take an individual who's going through something. It takes family time as well to come around. Um, but but without supportive family and friends, like uh, I don't know where I'd be, man. Well, Sean, Sean, tell me, you know, if you were going to look back at yourself at being like maybe 12 years old and going through physical, mental, spiritual changes, and you're looking at yourself being your age right now, is there any advice you'd give that person as in how to go forward from there on and how to maybe how to think or maybe how to process or maybe how to take it a little easier, maybe you took things a little too personal? Um, Any advice you you have for for your old self or for anybody out there that's young age, going through the same experiences you are right now or, or that you did? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know what, I would, I, would probably, I would probably say a lot of things, but uh, I would just want that 12-year-old person to know you're not alone and there is nothing wrong with you and what you're going through and what you're feeling. And if I had, like, 10 seconds to say something, that's probably what I would say, and hopefully that would open up the door to to just a gateway of understanding that there is nothing wrong with this. This is, this is in fact, it's such a spiritual process. It's such a whole journey. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we don't live forever, and we go somewhere, you know, and everybody has their, their own thoughts and feelings on what happens after death and this life is temporary and we've got this one-on-one connection with our creator and he creates us for a reason. He or she or they, you know, we are created for a reason and for a purpose and we've got to just be appreciative of that. And uh, I think that's what this, this uh, whole process has taught me is just appreciate every little thing that comes along with it. So. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean, for sharing that. Thank you for being on the show today. How, how can we reach you? How can we contact the great Sean Dasani? <laughs> I don't know about great, but... <laughs> Listen, sure, what, yeah, what you I had mean, to say today was very informative. It, it helps out a lot of people. It's very positive. This is what I wanted. This is the thing we discussed before, which is, you know, I, I want the audience to understand where you came from, where you're going to, you know... We could have gigantic A-list stars here. It's, it's not intensely difficult, especially during the summertime when people are doing the, the press pool. But what's most, mostly important to me is that people coming up get positive interactions with people who've gone through different experiences in their existence, and then they can come on a little healthier. And then we can have a healthy Hollywood and then great movies 
and then people pay taxes, and everybody gets married, and everybody gets divorced equally. So I, I'm very appreciative for you being yeah. on the show today. Uh, so how how can we reach you through Facebook, through through obviously your IMDb, Sean Sunny S H A A N D A S A N I is how you spell his name. So go ahead and go go to IMDb and get to Sean Sunny. But we can also find you on Facebook. Anywhere else, Twitter. Um, Oh my God, I I I'm sure I have a Twitter, but I am so embarrassed, man. I I don't use it nearly as much, and I'm in that space where it's like, all right, you got to get on there, you got to start tweeting. So you I'm one of those people, there. but <laughs> I'm on my Facebook all the time. Uh, so yeah, Facebook is great, and uh, and then there's my production company website where my email address, all that stuff for anyone who wants to get in touch with there, and that is KarmaTheoryFilms.com. Uh, so, yeah, Fantastic. if anyone wants to get in touch, that's where I'm going to go But, no, thank you so much. We're gonna I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. You know, I really appreciate you being on the show. I really appreciate all your positive thoughts. And, and have yourself a great weekend. God bless. Thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, boys and girls, thank you very much for listening. And we have, we have Jim Tonic going to be on in about two minutes. We're going to play a little bit of music here, and then we're going to have her on. So, listen up. That was the great Sean Dasani. You can find uh, Sean, uh, S-H-A-A-N, space, D-A-S-A-N-I, on IMDb.com, or you can find him on, on Facebook. Um, please give it a listen. Uh, I'd love for you to find out who he is and what he has to say there. Uh, this is some reggae while I get uh, Jen on the phone. Now, you can call on in. Our phone number here is 657-383-1444. Thank you for listening to Cinephiles Radio. I greatly appreciate it. We're having a great show today with Sean Dasani. It was a great interview. Great things to say. Great inspirational things to say as well. We're going to have Jen and Tonic on right now. By the way, if you don't like reggae music, there's something wrong with you. Uh, here we go. Here comes the, the great Jen and Tom. 
Hey, Jen, how you doing, girl? Hi, Steve. <laughs> it's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Although I guess something must be wrong with me. I'm just, I'm really just not into reggae. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, w- before we start off with your with your mm-hmm. IMDb, where you, where you, you know, with the film that you're making, all the art projects that you created, and all that stuff, you, you're mm-hmm. born in Idaho, and you go off to Los Angeles. So you're, you're we're, we're basically doing the girl goes from Midwest to Los Angeles. Uh, is that is that your story, or is is, is that a skew? You got it. You got it a little backwards. I was born in Southern California, but I grew up in Idaho, and then really two decades later, I kind of came full circle and ended up back where I belong. <laughs> so <laughs> now I'm here. I'm here in LA. <laughs> that's gonna be hilarious for the audience because people are gonna say you're born in LA and then you grew up in Idaho. Who does that? That's, that's just pretty I, backwards. I know. So how, <laughs> so how, how was that being, being, you know, being a teenager in Idaho? Pretty boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. Idaho's nice. Um, it's a nice. Now I met you. You have a very, you have a very, you have a very, you have a very colorful personality. I mean, how did that come across in in a small place? Oh, definitely. Um, I guess I was kind of like the weirdo in high school. Definitely huh. had my own. I I did my own thing, really. And right. uh, uh, where I grew up, it was kind of a suburb of the capital, Boise, Idaho. And just moving from from where I grew up to Boise, like that half hour move was probably further distance than 95% of the kids that I graduated with will ever make. So going, like making that move and then traveling all over the world and then traveling all over the country and now living in Los Angeles is kind of like, um, there's been like three other people from the state of Idaho that have ever done that, you know? (laughs) Right. So so you're born in Los Angeles, you go up to Idaho to to, to go through your Mm -hmm. teenage years, you leave, you go around the world. What what does around the world mean? What do do you travel to? Where Uh where are your travels? Most of my traveling in college was um, in Latin America. So I've been to Ecuador, Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua. Um, I've only been to Mexico a couple times, uh, but that's been more since my modeling career, uh, since I started doing that full time um, two years ago, three years ago. Two and a half years ago. And uh, since then, I've been to Mexico a couple times, and then I've been all over the West Coast, um, and then over to New York and New Jersey, and over on the East Coast, too. Nice. Now, now for, for, for the audience out there, to make reference mm-hmm. to your modeling career, you guys, yeah. you guys can find her profile on Model Mayhem. It's a site that I use as well. Model Mayhem, just type in gin and tonic, J-I-N space N space, well, tonic, and then you'll find her, uh, her model mayhem. So, so were you always interested in doing photography, or is that something that you know? I, I was a professional photographer for many, many years, and I would confront mm-hmm. a lot of lot of men and women to do shots of. Is that what happened to you, or did you pursue it yourself? Uh, no, it was definitely um, a decision that I had made. It was actually uh, being in front of the camera was something that I kind of fantasized about from a very, very young age. 
Um, modeling was something that fascinated me back in high school. You know, that was right, like right around when America's Next Top Model came out and all that. And um, right. I always just kind of, I, I don't think it was ever anything way. that, <laughs> it's fun. Um, I don't think it was anything that I'd ever expressed out loud uh, to anyone. And I think I just, I don't know, I just had it in my head that, you know, only certain people got to do that. And it really wasn't until, like, after college. I'd done, like, some acting things and, uh, you know, and a few shoots and people would say, oh, well, Jin's a model. And I would say, no, 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 I'm not a model. Models have to look a certain way or be from a certain place. I just model as a hobby. And um, right. it, it was it wasn't until, like, after college, you know, I was kind of just, uh, you know, I you get out of school, you're broke. Uh, I got laid off from my job as a personal trainer and so I'm waiting tables and I'm just kind of lost. And that I realized that really the, the person that was telling me no, the person that kept saying I couldn't do it was myself. And uh, so since then, since I realized that and, you know, every time I get kind of wayward in my goals, the universe kind of keeps pushing me back onto this path of, of being a professional actor, model, badass as I am. Right. Well, when, you know, when I, I met you, you mm-hmm. well, when I met you, you have a very, very specific look. You have a, it, it's interesting to me because you can look very modern and you can look very mm-hmm. classic. And, and by classic, I mean maybe depression era look, um, 1923 and you can look um, 2015 punk. It's it's very it's very very <laughs> interesting. As a photographer, uh, you come in contact with been able to take advantage of that, or or have you seen that yourself? What do you think? Oh, absolutely, definitely. Uh, my my greatest strength, and also as it often happens, my greatest strength and also my greatest weakness is uh, my versatility, and um, that's been something that. Over, you know, during the first, like, two years of modeling as I was just building my portfolio, I was really out there just kind of proving, I guess, to the world and to myself that, you know, I was like, hey, you need a pretty girl next door? I can do that. Uh, you need pinup? I can do that. You need vintage? I can do that. You need punk rock? I can do that. You need fashion? I can do that. And so it's really been out there just showcasing that I can do, I can do anything. Um Right. I'm at the point, you know, I have friends, the other acting friends, and they're like, well, I'm not really, you know, like the lead role type. And then I, I tell them, uh, don't limit yourself. Let other people do that. Like, that that's, that's ridiculous, by the way. That's ridiculous <laughs> that you're not, you're not lead, lead, lead material role. I, I can write you a movie tomorrow that could easily make you <laughs> lead, lead. That, That's so, when people say that, it's so infuriating to me because they have no idea uh, what they're what they're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of Heath Ledger for the Joker. It's like he would make a horrible Joker. Now he defines the Joker, and people might make comments yeah. to you saying, uh, you know, like, oh, you're not lead actress. What is lead actress material? I mean, you're five foot three, aren't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, that would immediately shoot you down. Modeling. If, if we round up, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, there's shoes. definitely. If I have shoes on, uh, there's definitely. You know, it happens to me today. I know that when you meet me, I don't stand out as the modeling type. But 
basically it's like I'm I'm short, I'm curvy, I'm goofy, uh, my hair is short, um, I have tattoos, you know. It's all these things that typically uh, there's, you know, all these things that would say that this is not a model. I've never once. Uh, it still happens today when I go to shoot, people ask, oh, are you a photographer? Um, right. So I don't right. stand out as looking like a model, but it's just like anything else where it's a, it's a skill that you learn. And um, what it comes down to is it doesn't matter what your look is. There's work for every look. People seem right. to think, I have a friend who's considering moving out here. And she's like, I don't know. I don't have the L.A. look. I don't have you know, tattoos and whatever, and I'm like, actually, you'll get more work if you don't have tattoos. Like, they need every look. L.A. needs every look out there. Right. I've been on a photography shoot to where literally a photographer walk up to me and will say, do you know anybody who who models? We need need somebody right now. And literally, (laughs) they're pouring up $2,000 immediately for a model. And I remember calling two models I knew personally and saying, Listen, mm-hmm. this guy needs two models. We're doing a wedding photography shoot. Come on down. They're like, mm-hmm. well, I'm kind of busy right now. I really can't make it. They, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that mm-hmm. it was open casting for anybody. And if I knew somebody, they would get that job. Uh, do you find I it, Obviously, you. you're saying <laughs> you find it to be the same. We're friends saying, I don't have tattoos. How can I make it out there? What right. would you say to a person like that? I mean, that, it seems kind of like such a ridiculous comment to make to us. But, see, we're out there in L.A., mm-hmm. so... What do you say to a person like that to inspire them to go after their passion? It's just that, uh, you know, you can't be the one, you can't do what I was doing. You can't be the one that's holding yourself back. And I told my my particular friend, I was like, if you don't come out to L.A. because you don't believe in yourself, then I failed you as a friend. Because that's the first thing that you have to do is you have to believe in yourself. Otherwise, nobody else. Why would anybody else? It's very obvious when somebody comes right. out and doesn't believe in themselves, and they don't they don't make it. But hopefully, you know, they come out here and have good experiences, and you can learn to believe in yourself. When I was growing up in in the Hollywood world, it was always fake mm-hmm. it till you make it. Have you have you found yeah. that it's changed or? Yeah, what is oh, it? Oh God, now? no! Oh God, no! It's uh, no. that is a hundred percent true. I fake it. Every day, like if you call me up and you're like, uh, "So we're gonna do a shoot on stilts." Do you know stilts? I'm like, "Oh hell yeah!" Like I can stilts. Oh yeah. I do. <laughs> and I do that every every day, every audition. You know, it, that's what you have to do. The first photo shoot I had, I just went in there and I just made it up. And sometimes I still do a little bit because there's always something. There's always something new to learn. There, which is why I love what I do. As it's it's both mentally and physically challenging and rewarding and you know not many people get to say that about about what they do. A lot of people just you know they work for money to pay bills and I right. do what I love and I push myself and I challenge myself. But you know if I go up in front of casting directors and want a British accent, uh, I'll just fake like I know a British accent and know that I can get it down by the time film date comes. You know. Right. Right. So, so you, you, you came out here for, for modeling, but you also did a lot of acting. Uh, your filmographies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you started off in, what, 2010, in The Strange Curse of Love, Person of mm-hmm. Interest, um, you know, 30 Proof Coil. How, how was your movie experiences? By the way, audience, if you want to find her IMDb, it's under Jennifer Miller, and it's, she spells oh, the last, no. last uh, 
Where were they? I know they're going to find it. This is the yes. internet. This is the era of the internet. Okay. They're going to find it's Jennifer, the most boring name in the world. <laughs> no, it's a nice name. It's a really nice name. I like gin and tonic too. It just re- it just reminds me of what I drank last night. Uh, but <laughs> no, I love your name. So when we, when we look at your your filmography here, uh, how did you feel about that? You know, are you pursuing that still? Is that, is that still interest uh, interest for yours, or are you are you going towards the entertainment field, um, which is more broad? Oh, I definitely have not heard it put that way. Uh, I think potentially long-term goals are more in the manner of entertainment. Um, I definitely, I originally started out with acting, and it wasn't until, you know, I had a few photo shoots for, like, headshots, but uh, I was approached by, like, a cameraman for a shoot, and that was just kind of, like, my own concept. I did this photo shoot with my motorcycle, and everybody had just such a huge positive to these photos uh, that I kind of just kept kept doing it and really the modeling just kind of took off and I realized very quickly that modeling was going to kind of be uh, my way back to where I belong. That's going to be my way back to LA. So modeling is something that I was able to kind of make happen like immediately. The acting is still definitely uh, my primary love and is something that now that I'm here, I'm kind of transitioning back into more acting. Uh, I definitely, you know, I spent two years on the road, and now that I'm here in L.A., I'm trying, I've postponed a lot of trips because I want to focus my energies here, and I definitely am chatting with different producers about making a few different shorts uh, in order to create, and to create a really awesome reel and kind of just, you know, picking people's brains and uh, really evaluating everything that I need to do here in order to really move more back into acting because that is my primary love. Right. Everybody, go, go, to, go to her Model Mayhem uh, portfolio. I think you really love the photos. Uh, <laughs> you go to her Facebook as well. I think you really love them as well. She's, she has a great look. She has a, she's, and I've met her person. She has a great personality. She's very bubbly. She's very straightforward. She's very pixie-like. You mentioned the tattoos before. That, that's, that's an interesting concept there. Uh, did, did you think about the tattoos before you went to modeling, or did you start inking yourself afterwards? Um, actually, my very first tattoo is a rather large piece on my my right shoulder blade. And as I was 18 when I went to go get it, and uh, it's Winnie the Pooh and Piglet, and it's set in like a Chinese landscape setting. And as it's from my favorite book, The Tao of Pooh. Uh, as I'm as I'm going in and she's showing me, you know, the design that she's about to put permanently on my body, I am having these thoughts in my head, and one of them was, what about acting? And I had two simultaneous thoughts in response to that. My first was, well, I'm never going to be an actor anyway. And then the second thought was, well, there's always makeup. So it was, right. it's it kind of bittersweet sweet with the tattoos. I definitely, I've had to come to accept them and, um, you know, they're growing. I just had a very large cover-up done on my shoulder. Um, I've had very many experiences where, you know, something's permanently on me and it's not, it's not artwork. It's not what I'm happy with. It's not done well. Right. And being somebody that my, my whole career is based on being in front of the camera. And then additionally, uh, showcasing myself as somebody who's versatile and then especially as an actor, 
you know, tattoos kind of make that difficult. So it was like with my first tattoo, it was really a lot of it was me not having faith in my ability to not, not chasing what I knew in my heart I was meant to do. So now I have to kind of reevaluate, okay, why do I have these tattoos? What can they mean? And really it's become um, kind of a spiritual journey and, it's basically become where uh, I definitely don't recommend it to, you know, young girls and models and people that want to be actors. I know tattoos are really trendy, but I always tell people, I'm like, tattoos are dumb. Like, don't, don't get tattoos. But I have them myself. And so it's become kind of a sacrifice where my body is now becoming a bit of a message board. And right. uh, I'm trying to build beautiful artwork that sends a message not only about, like, who I am or who I was or what I'm trying to become, but just spreading positivity into other people's lives. Right. Now, let's just say there's a there's a 17-year-old girl just about to turn 18, just about to move out to L.A. from Idaho, mm-hmm. and she's following your footsteps. She's seen you on Facebook. She's seen you on different things, mm-hmm. and she loves you, and she writes you a letter and says, listen, do you have any piece of advice for me on something that you would have done differently on moving from Idaho to California, anything, the tattoos, anything that you would give me as an opinion on how, how would life be easier for me opposed to maybe other people's life? Because they always say intelligence is you learning from your own mistakes, but wisdom mm-hmm. is learning from other people's mistakes. What would you have done differently yeah. to teach this person? Um. I don't know that I would have done anything differently, but something that when I first started out, I really didn't have um, any kind of a mentor. I didn't have uh, anybody to follow, which a lot of it was just, you know, I did my own research up to a certain level, but I would definitely recommend doing more. Like there's so many models that have blogs, that have video channels on YouTube, um, that, you know, do ask me anything time on Tumblr. And I would definitely uh, support that and additionally together with other models because it wasn't until I'd already been modeling for like a year and a half that I actually on my first group shoot, and it was a cruise down to Mexico, and there was, uh, I believe, 30-something other models from all over the world that were also uh, sponsored to be on this cruise, on this group shoot. And that was my first time interacting with other models and getting getting feedback and getting to share stories. And it's really it's so awesome to get to spend time. I host traveling models all the time. And uh, a lot of them are my friends, and a lot of them were connected, you know, through, through social media for sure. And it's so nice to get together and just be able to kind of really vent about the different the different obstacles in this industry. And uh, that's really like the biggest learning experience. And uh, tied into that also is um, doing your research, not only on modeling and what it really entails, uh, the different kinds of modeling, the different genres, what your genre is, but also there's nothing that I preach more than uh, safety and protecting yourself because unfortunately this industry is a – it's more of a societal problem that this exists, but this industry is a perfect avenue for sexual predators and for scam artists. And I definitely, my very first shoot, I had a bad experience back when I was 20. And, you know, I did what happens a lot of times is I didn't know what to do about it. 
didn't think about it. I brushed it off. I wrote an angry poem that this is what the industry is like, and that's why I'll never be a model. Model for three years after that point, uh, but wow. it's because I hadn't done my research. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of things to know, and there's a lot. Of, so that's like the biggest thing that I preach, and that I'm the administrator of a couple different modeling groups, and I'm always answering emails as best as I can, and I'm always very honest and straightforward about the fact that these these predators exist because what he was able to do is he moved on. And if uh, a lot of times what happens in these scenarios, they can just change their name, they can just move to a different state, and they can continue right. taking advantage of young girls with big dreams. So I preach like, safety like above everything Palanthi. else. Hmm? Yeah. Like Roman Polanski. Yeah. Yes. yes, exactly. That's, that's, that's the, um, the big one right now where he's still getting hired by Playboy, I think. Yes. Is that that guy? I know you're talking okay. about. I know, yeah. Yes. You know, it, 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 was, it was very interesting. You know, you're bringing up a subject here that I, that I did want to talk about and I almost wanted to avoid. But you can't avoid right. it. You, you just can't. No. Um, you know, predator, predators out there, they're just, they're just out there. I mean, they're, just, they're mm-hmm. just there. They're going to be there. What's a good sign? Uh, I, I teach for a living. You know this. I, I'm a teacher. What what would you teach females on how to spot a predator? Um, definitely, the biggest thing is just intuition. It really, really is. Um, mm-hmm. Any kind of red flag that you get from somebody, uh, recognize it. You always have to give yourself, and this is something that I still struggle with uh, because uh, I still encounter sometimes photographers that seem to think that uh, they've just rented a girlfriend or we'll have questions that are far too personal, or, you know, different things right. like that. And uh, you have to give yourself permission to walk away. You don't have to explain yourself. And right. um, unfortunately, that's, this is a very, it's a very large and very small industry. So it's difficult. Mm. It can be very difficult to do that because word spreads around fast. And like you said, people don't want to talk about this. Uh, I talk about this. I made a blog post a year and a half ago, I believe, about a guy who tried to scam me out of money here in Culver City. And uh, there's still threads on Model Mayhem today about that. And there's photographers that seem to have the impression that I'm difficult to work with. And that's something that is out there about me. But I, all I'm doing is being honest and people don't want to talk about it, but we need to talk about it because what happens is if you don't, they, they can continue doing malicious things. Yes. And so it's not exactly a positive, it's not a positive subject, but it's a very true subject that exists out there and um, there's trusting your instincts. And then there's also checking references, any professional, right should not be offended by you asking for references. And no. uh, that's not something that I knew to do at the beginning. You know, I just saw a guy with amazing photos and I was like, wow, he could make me look like that. And that's how, you know, I got into luckily not an awful situation, but not an ideal one and uh, not right. something that I want anybody else to experience. So it's checking references. And if somebody gets offended that you won't give them references, nobody's photos, like nobody's portfolio, nobody's photos are worth your safety. Just give yourself permission. Right. Walk away. And uh, I think that's something that, especially growing up as a woman, kind of 
uh, a lot of times we don't feel confident in that ability and giving ourselves permission to do that. And uh, a lot of girls, unfortunately, too, is, uh, that are out there kind of doing this as a rebellion uh, tend to kind of, you know, be, they're called a sexual predator for a reason because they can, they can tell somebody who's had past experiences, somebody who's weak, somebody who's naive, somebody who's new, and they can see who they can take advantage of. So it's really important to do your research, look at the models they've worked with, contact those models, ask for references, and above all, trust right. your instincts. Uh, give that person's information to a friend. Make sure you're always safe. Make sure somebody always knows where you are. And uh, right. and then be honest. You know, Jen, for me, you you know, when, I, when mm-hmm. I was in photography professionally, uh, a lot of females mm-hmm. would say, would you mind if I brought a friend? And that was mm-hmm. always, a, I was, I, I'd always say, of course, sure. As long as the person does mm-hmm. not get in the way, I have zero. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, I have another person who can carry stuff. <laughs> it's great. So I had a lot right, of female, right. Uh, right? I had a lot of female models who were like, "Do you mind if I bring a friend with me?" And I'm like, um, "No." Does she mind carrying things? Uh, I have, right. you know, I, I, I got photography there. But you know, it's very interesting about art and something that I, I, I try to tell people all the time or teach people through art, which is, art is about taking care, especially photography. It's about taking mm-hmm. care of the person you're taking photographs of. The reason why I was a photographer was because I couldn't paint. So, <laughs> right? And, you know, you're, you're yes. gaining the trust of the model, and the models are changing in front of you, and, and they're doing different things, and, and your job is to protect them. And I, it mm-hmm. was very kind of frightening to grow up and looking at people going, other people don't feel the same way. That's, that's very odd to me because art is about purity. It's about beauty. It's about bringing the trust. Because the more you trust me, the more you're going to show me more of yourself through the photograph. So I would think right. that that's what that photographer would want. Um, so moving on from this subject matter here, uh, you know, and you're such a lovely person. I, I love talking to you. Where, where can we find you now? Where, where, where's your working going to now? Um, a lot of my efforts recently, I'm trying to pick my blog back up. Um, definitely put more effort into that. I'm trying to build more uh, my own, I'm kind of branding gin and tonic, uh, getting my style out there, working with a lot of designers out here doing shoots specifically for the book, as well as, uh, you know, just collaborating with as many people as possible. And um, also my YouTube videos. I've been doing uh, weekly-ish videos on YouTube since, oh, really? yeah, since last October. I'm really... Well, that leads to my um, next question: is, is how can mm-hmm. we find you? So we're gonna we're gonna find you on YouTube. We're gonna find your YouTube channel. How yeah. can we find that channel? It's YouTube.com/slash/thegin-and-tonic because uh, there's already a gin and tonic out there, but I'm the gin and tonic. Oh. <laughs> so T H E G I N and tonic. Yes, and um, also hashtag J N T. Um, anything on. Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on my YouTube videos, if you look for JNT, all of that will bring me up. Nice. Boys and girls, thank you. You know, listen, watch her stuff. Look at her things. on. Look at her IMDb. <laughs> go through her Facebook. Look at her pictures. She has her own website. It's not, it's not a PG website. It's more of a P13 going no. to R, which is, which is, you know, and so everybody who is listening right now, just remember that. Don't, don't just jump to the site if you're 12 <laughs> years old right now. Or do, uh, if you're, I don't know. Uh, but uh, you can give a break. But uh, <laughs> we're very much looking forward to your thing. Ever since I, I met you uh, about a year ago, I, I very much want to have you on my radio show. 
Um, I think your story is very, very cool and very, very incredible. I I very much enjoyed your your conversation. Uh, So we're going to find you on Facebook. We're going to find you on Twitter. Uh, Jenna Tana, thank you so much for being on the show. We hope you have a good Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. Thank you very much. Was that girl? All right. We lost there. We we got cut out. All right. We're going to listen to a little bit of uh, music here. It was great talking to Jenna Tana. She's a great, great, great girl. Uh, great personality, very bubbly, very pixie-like. You see her pictures, they're very edgy. Uh, I love them. The, the picture I love the most is the one where she has her blonde hair with her index fingers, uh, nail sticking inside of her, her teeth. It's really a cool photo. It reminds me of old Vogue before Kim Kardashian was on the website or, or on the uh, cover and destroyed the entire magazine. Uh, but before that, it was awesome. Awesome. So uh, let's listen to some uh, more reggae. And then we'll come back and end our show. Thank you very much for listening to Sentinel Files today. Thank you to Gin and Tonic, and thank you to Sean Dasani. Uh, listen to some more music, and we'll get on in a sec. Boys and girls, thank you very much for joining us today on Cinema Files Radio. I'm your host, Steve Pisa. What a great show today. We had the great Sean Dasani on today. Ooh, here comes the music. Who knows this song? Who knew who wrote it? You know who wrote it? You know who plays it? Go to Cinema Files Radio on Facebook and write us a little letter. If you like the show, write us a little note here on Cinema Files Radio on Facebook or on Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show. I'm enjoying myself. I hope you are too. The only reason why I did this radio show was to have fun. We have the excellent Sean Dasani on today. He told us everything about his life, going back to being a first-generation Indian in North Carolina, to coming out to Los Angeles, being a transgender, changing his personality, perspective on things. It's a very interesting story, and a story about adversity. And diversity. I think more adversity is, not, is the word I would not use. I would use diversity. Diversity is the word I would use. You're growing up in Los Angeles. You can't help but see every type of human being on this planet Earth. So nothing should shock you. It's kind of like the third season of Lost. You should not have a surprise on your face anymore. You've seen everything. You've seen the smoke monster. You've seen all the sci-fi. You've seen all the mythology. You shouldn't be shocked. It's Los Angeles. So, 
Talking to Sean Dasani was a great story. Great little lip of hope for all of you out there living a dream, living in fear, or something you think other people will not accept you for. Sean was a great beacon of hope for you right there. We had the beautiful and fantastic Jen and Tonic on. Jen and Tonic being a model, an actress. Looking forward to a lot of things going on for her. Her career is essentially starting off. But starting off nicely. When I met her, she was very sweet, very kind, very different. And I liked that about her. And I wanted to get to know her a little better. Well, better than a radio show, right? Jen and Tonic. We talked a lot about what makes us different and what makes us the same. I want you to remember out there, there are more things about us that are similar that are different. We're more similar than different. Revel in that. Thank you for listening today. I greatly appreciate it. I love you all. God bless. For Cinema Files Radio, I am Steve Pisa, your host. Please stay tuned for your next show next week, 10 a.m. Pacific. Osbamwa. God bless. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs>